Entertainment's podcast from Bottomline Technologies. We reported earlier this year that for one in five enterprise businesses, the financial losses suffered due to fraud totaled over £1 million. Now, why would we ask the question, fraud is ignorance really bliss? Well, today we're going to discuss that. I'm Rich Williams, host of the Payments Podcast, and today I'll be chatting about how organisations should be preparing to spot and stop fraud. To explain this topic in more detail, I'm joined by Jack Ginella, Market Development Executive for Risk and Fraud at Bottom Line. Hello, Jack. Hi, Rich. Jack, thanks for joining us today. Now, this episode has quite a bold title, doesn't it? Now, what do we mean by, is ignorance really bliss? So ultimately, Rich, what we mean here is that even if you're not noticing fraud, that doesn't mean to say that it's not happening, unfortunately. The point being is that it's not just about losing money from an attack, but being able to stop it when something does happen. So you need to be aware of an attempt that's taking place. Because if you don't see anything, you need to be asking yourself the question, is something going under the radar that I'm not noticing? So something that came out of Bottom Line's business payments barometer recently was sort of more of a certainty that fraud is actually taking place for corporates. So back in 2018, the corporates that we asked questions to in our barometer, 15% of which said that they had been a victim of fraud in the past. However, 41% of people actually didn't know whether they had been or not. However, that sort of stat completely flipped during 2019 in the latest version of the barometer, where it was 45% of corporates said that they had been a a victim of fraud. So that's nearly one in two corporates that we asked had been a victim. However, just 16% said that they didn't know. So this is a good stat in the sense that the reduction in those that hadn't been sure has completely reduced, which I see as a really good thing because you either know or you don't know. And that's a good thing. However, obviously quite bad to say that one in two had been a victim of fraud. The the point is just that that yes explains that if you don't know about fraud, there is a chance that you're going to be a victim at some point. It's interesting that that dynamic has flipped on its head in the most recent study that was done. Um, And what about those organisations that are adamant they haven't been affected by fraud? How confident can they be that this is actually the case? So I think what we're being told, and certainly what we're hearing from our customers at the moment, is that even without the right technology in place, you just cannot be sure in any way. Um, The right technology should be able to allow you to track your payments and track your behaviours in order to see whether you're a victim of fraud or not. You know, just manual spot checks and manual process just aren't good enough in this day and age effectively. There are real life examples and quite a few real life examples out there at the moment. We often see countless stories within the news about fraud. Um, the most interesting ones for me with this in mind are those examples that sort of track fraud over a long period of time that are just not being picked up by a business. It's a perfect example, I think from a company that we all know, BMW, that came out in 2015, where an accountant within that business stole money over a three-year period, which seems it was quite staggering, actually, three years of undetected fraud that was not picked up. So I think that sort of suggests that technology must be in place in order to try and track these things. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of times there about organisations having the right technology in place. 
What do you mean by this, Jack? And what's an example of the right technology? Um, so there's a, a number of different things that I'd quite like to mention. Um, but ultimately, there are abundance of different pieces of technology out in the market there today in order to safeguard businesses against fraud. The aim of obviously using such technology is to ensure that you have sufficient processes in place just so that fraudsters cannot cannot exploit your systems, I think. And obviously that is both internally and externally the people that can exploit your systems. So the first one, the first example that I like to talk about when I talk about technology in, within processes and systems is multi-factor authentication. So we should probably use you for an example here, Rich. Do you, um, you use online banking? Uh, I do, yeah. Um, so how do you log into your online banking? And I, well, I don't just mean a, a username and password there. <laughs> sure. Um, so I do have a username and password, obviously. Um, and then there's a, a card reader as well that I use my uh, current account card in. Okay, great. So there is a perfect example. That card reader that you use in order to log into online banking is an example of multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication is something that as a consumer and user of technology, we all come into contact with every single day. Um, This multi-factor authentication is literally just an additional step that users can take in order to secure their account. Your username and password is your first level and that is something that you have uh, sorry that is something that you know so you know your username you know your password the second layer is something which you have so like you say rich you use a card reader which is great in terms of an mfa multi-factor authentication piece Um, this can often be your mobile device it can be a key fob that offers a token a a different and, and and a code but it's something which you have as well as the bit of information that you know. And like I say, it seems a simple and a simple thing, but actually it's just adding more and more steps in order when you're logging in to secure your processes. So I log into my personal online banking, as we mentioned there, um, very quickly, conveniently uh, using some form of multi-factor authentication along with my, my password, of course. Mm-hmm. Now, is this the same experience that uh, an organization might expect from uh, a payment system, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about one extra layer. So the user experience is normally seamless and just adds sort of seconds onto your login process. I've just mentioned a couple of the examples that lots of companies use. Those token providers, the pieces that offer you a code to enter, they just add a simple step. So you're using an extra security level, but your user experience is still very good and very quick in terms of doing that. Great, so that's one really simple example of using the right technology, Jack. Um, What's another example? So another great example of additional security could be using technology to segregate duties within any sort of process or payment process, whatever. So this is all about separating user access and functions within a process, effectively meaning that one individual cannot perform all of the actions across a process. So if we're talking about a payment, for example, I cannot log into my payment process, submit, upload, and create the same payment. I cannot just com- I cannot just complete that action in one go. It needs a second pair of eyes and a second user in order to do this. So I've mentioned the BMW fraud example earlier on today. This is a really good example of this. So this one accountant that 
I mentioned stole money over three years, first of all made one payment, changed the bank account details, one payment worth £30,000 and six, was able to do it successfully. Following that, he made 58 different payments over that course of time, eventually stealing over £6 million from BMW. The point here is, if he had segregation of duty, he would not have been able to perform that change of bank details to his own bank details without somebody else having to approve that. Again, this feels like quite a simple step, just adding somebody else into the process just to approve any sort of changes, any sort of different payment that have been made. But it really helps to secure the solution and the process, I suppose. Okay, so that seems like another simple and logical precaution for an organisation to take. What about any automated checks that um, someone could put into place? So obviously that second step of approval needs a a second or, or more pairs of eyes, but presumably they're going to be things that finance professionals won't spot, uh, like if an account is blacklisted, for example. Another really important factor of a proper secure payment process would be the transaction monitoring that happens within the payment process. So here, and I think I made the point earlier, is that manual spot checks just aren't good enough in today's society. It doesn't matter whether you're making small payments and a few of them up to a lot of payments and large amounts. You cannot, you cannot rely on a human getting things 100% right anymore. And just in general, we're all human. We make mistakes. We all do every day. Um, so the point is here is having something technically that can perform 100% transaction monitoring for every little check, really. So this is just as much as it is for sort of anti-money laundering as it is for error as well. So what you're looking for here is technology to check common types of fraud and error. So you want something to check the file and the payment just as soon as it goes out, well, before it goes out of the door, effectively. You know, you're looking for the likes of duplicate payments, for example, from an error point of view, but also things like private blacklists from an AML point of view. You want, we always recommend that our customers check the likes of first time payments, for example, because if a fraudulent activity encounters somebody changing details that might be to somebody that has never been paid by the business before therefore a first-time payment check is an ideal check to carry out Um, again you mentioned blacklists when you asked me the question rich and a blacklist is something that a company can populate for account details that they do not want to pay so for example during a supplier payment rich you would never want your own employee's bank details to be involved with that supplier payment. Um, so adding a blacklist that corresponds to said supplier payment with full of employees' bank details would really help secure that payment. Um, again, going back to the BMW example, if BMW had a blacklist that incorporated their employees' bank details, those fraudulent payments would never have been made. Um, again, it's just something that a business can provide and add extra checks in order to make their processes that bit more secure. And it would be configurable, I assume. So you would screen um, employees against a, a supplier run and suppliers against a payment run for, for staff, for example. In an ideal world, absolutely, yeah. So you'd want them to be completely configurable to the different payments that you're making. 
Um, you you want to maintain said blacklists, you know, even for your payroll payments, for example, you wouldn't want somebody being paid that's left the business. It's just like you say, being able to configure them and maintain them on a constant basis really helps. Okay, so that sounds like a, another simple and effective measure to uh, to take into consideration. Um, let's talk about the data itself now. Data is a very hot topic and certainly has been for the last few years. Now, with particular reference to GDPR, um, there are significant fines that can be levied against a company for a breach of this. Now, what can be done to mitigate that risk? Absolutely, Rich. So a really, really important topic as far as fraud goes. It's really important to realise that fraud is not just about stealing money. It's obviously a large part, but data is such a key part of fraud. And what damage can be done if data gets into the wrong hands? Protecting personal data while it's at rest within a business's network is vitally important. Um, and we would always encourage our customers to encrypt that data. So when we say protect that data, encryption normally would render the data completely unintelligible. So it would make an open payment file into something that, if it got into the wrong hands, just cannot be you know, worked out as the what the personal data is. So this has obviously got a couple of really key benefits. The fact that that data cannot be viewed means that the personal data within the file is protected, as you say. This is a huge thing when it comes to GDPR. Um, a business can be fined up to 4% of their global turnover over GDPR if personal data is breached. We read recent, we've read recently about the likes of British Airways and Capital One that have been exposed to huge data breaches and encrypting these, this data is a really, really important process. Encrypting the data of, as well obviously locks the file down. So as well as protecting the personal data, it also protects a fraudster being able to edit any of that, of that data within the file. If they wanted to change their own bank details and make a fraudulent payment, they would be unable to do that if the data was encrypted. So in my head, I'm, I'm sort of picturing uh, one file unencrypted being a list of names and account numbers, for example, and the encrypted file being like an opening scene to The Matrix, just un uninterpretable code. Would that be a fair example for a layman? Without doubt, yes. So it's complete gobbledygook, if you like, for want of a better term, but that's exactly right. So yeah, when you say what can be done to mitigate the risk of both data breaches and fraud, it's really important to be able to lock files down using encryption, I would say. And then when you do that, securing that the transfer of that data into a payment system, for example, you know, really does firm the process up. Okay, so you mentioned there about uh, that secure data transfer. Could you explain a little bit more about how that's beneficial? Yeah, absolutely. So what I mean here is how data is transported around a company's business system, you know, from where payment files might be created, for example, into their business payment process and their solution to do that for them. So secure data transfer effectively ensures that that process of transportation is completely automated. So it completely removes the need for a human to interact with a payment file at any point. Um, obviously, securing the process in the sense that if there's no ability to hack that file at any point, all the better for the company. So not only that, but it also would save the business a little bit of time. So the file would come out of a business application or whether it's processed and it would be uploaded automatically into their payment solution. 
um, like I say, saving the business some time and completely securing that that bit of the process. Okay, so it's a combination of um, security and efficiency as well. Absolutely, yeah, exactly that. So to summarise then, Jack, uh, we've looked at a more secure login process for the system itself, segregation of duties within the system, securing data at rest and at transfer. What else can be done? Yeah, absolutely. So my final bit of advice would be sort of based around people, really, um, and monitoring the behaviour of employees that have access to data and the payment process. I might use you an example here, if that's okay. <laughs> sure, go ahead. Um, so... Obviously, we must promote trust in our own employees and, you know, it's quite a contentious issue, this, but 80 to 90 percent of a typical fraudster would actually be somebody that's been employed by a business for a little while, which is why I say yourself, Rich, because you've been with Bottom Line for a little while now, I think, Um, making you somebody that fits the bill for this. Um, So there's something called the fraud triangle. So the fraud triangle has three pillars obviously the first is the opportunity to be able to execute a fraudulent transaction the second is their pressure and their own personal situation that allows them a little bit of a is there should i be able should am i able to commit a bit of fraud here and then the third is the rationalization so their justification of being able to perform something quite bad in in the sense of performing a fraudulent transaction I suppose the point being here is that you don't ever know somebody's personal situation and it's obviously awful to insinuate that somebody could perform this sort of act but there's never a reason to not be too careful here um, with the people that have access to your own personal systems the data that we previously discussed um, and just that they would have the opportunity to perform something like this so regular checks on whether you the likes of things that we've already discussed segregation of duty for example just making sure that a certain person cannot gain access to performing that something that could have a detrimental impact on any business really that's really interesting and uh, disclaimer for our internal auditors my bank account is entirely clean please do help yourself and take a look Uh, glad Um, to hear it that's uh, quite a bombshell to finish on jack Um, unfortunately that is all we've got time for today but it's been a real pleasure talking with you and uh, thanks again for coming and speaking with us Absolutely, Rich. Thanks very much for having me. Well, we'll be back with some more content very soon. But in the meantime, you can listen to more episodes on all things payments at the touch of a button using your preferred provider. And we'll see you all next time. The Payments Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.